rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 20 of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie Niemeyer, and um, actually, there's uh, because I'm recording this so much later, than, or so soon after the previous episode, I don't have any emails to go over, so I guess we're just going to start with our first issue for this month. Presenting Superman! Alright, our uh, first issue for this month is Superman 250. And uh, it was released on February 10th, 1972, with a cover by Neil Adams, which actually looks really cool. Uh, if you have a chance to check it out, I recommend it. You see Terra Man firing a shot at Superman's head to brand him, and you see Superman withering away of old age, while behind him you see all these people being held back by a line of cops. It's rather cool, and you see the sun setting behind the city in the background. Uh, this issue starts with a nice little song. I'm not going to sing it, but I am going to read the verse for you. It says, I'll sing you a song that rogue Terraman. To kill Superman was his villainous plan. He flew through the air on a mighty winged steed, defying the law both in word and in deed. Now what causes outlaw to ride and to shoot? His hunger for power, his hunger for loot. But a much stranger hunger will soon meet your eye in this surprising story called Have Horse, Will Fly. Written by Carrie Bates, art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson, and of course edited by Julie Schwartz. At the Federal Bureau of Printing and Engraving in Metropolis, John P. Alstrom thinks to himself that he's going to miss the smell of the new bills fresh from the presses while he spends the next two weeks on vacation. As he leaves the building for the day, he begins coughing and choking due to the city's smog and heads home determined to finish his portable air purifier. Meanwhile, at the state penitentiary, we see Terramans slightly complaining about the conditions of prisons in the 20th century, uh, which eventually frustrates him enough that he slams the table he's eating his meal at, earning him, 24, uh, uh, earning him 24 hours in solitary confinement. Swearing that he will never go to prison again, he decides it is now time to summon his winged stallion, Nova. Unfortunately, the ultra-high frequency whistle he uses is also heard by Superman superhearing, and while he's flying over Metropolis on patrol. So as Superman heads out to the state pen, we see Nova already arriving, using his wings to create a strong enough suction to rip the wall between him and Terraman out. Uh, Terraman then hops onto Nova, and they take off. The guards try to shoot them down, but Nova's wings beat so fast that they're actually whipping up enough wind to blow the bullets away. As they make their way from the prison, Superman shows up, but Terraman's prepared for him, removes his gold tooth, and throws it at Superman. The tooth, which is actually made of gravita gold, spreads all over Superman's costume, weighing him down enough that he actually crashes to the ground as Terraman flies off. The villain then flies out into, the, into space to his invisible spacecraft and changes to his usual costume, determined to head back to Metropolis and take out Superman. And then he really doesn't. Hours later, the massive weight of the Grivita Gold slackens off enough for Superman to fly at super speed into the sun, vaporizing all of it off of him before heading back to his apartment on Earth. As he leaves the building as Clark Kent, he runs into his neighbor, John Alstrom. 
wearing his air purifier that he just invented. Uh, uh, Alstrom makes a speech to Clark about how bad the air pollution is getting before Clark excuses himself to get to work. Seconds later, we see Alstrom, who is crossing the street, collapse from asphyxiation as a motorcycle comes zooming up with no time to stop. Faster than the eye can follow, Clark flies back at super speed, puts his body between Alstrom and the driver to create a ramp, and then when the biker successfully leaps over, uh, he super speeds up to the sky where he can make a lightning fast change uh, to Superman before flying back down to the street to pick up Alstrom, remove his faulty purifier, and take him to the nearest hospital. Several hours later, Alstrom wakes up, and the doctor reveals to him that he has green lung, which is similar to black lung, you know, but green, which Alstrom thinks may be due to his constant exposure to the money ink. The doctor then explains his air purifier had an imperfection that actually intensified certain rare gases from the atmosphere, which had a weird effect on his lungs. The doctor wants to run more tests, but Alstrom, fearing that news of his green lung could actually cost him his job, just grabs his shirt and tie and gets the heck out of there. Outside, he finds that he no longer has any trouble breathing in the city's foul air, but at the newspaper stand behind him and unknown to Alstrom. A man who we see actually trying to buy a Playboy finds that his $100 in new bills that he just withdrew from the bank are now just blank white pieces of paper. Alstrom then passes a movie theater, sees a poster for that famous movie The Good, The Bad, and The Hungry, then doesn't, but doesn't have enough money for a ticket. So he heads off to the bank, while the teller in the window notices that all of the new bills in her cash box have suddenly turned to plain white paper. Inside the theater, the patrons are calmly watching the movie, when suddenly Terra Man and Nova burst through the screen, causing enough of a commotion for Morgan Edge to actually send Clark there to cover the story. As he heads out, uh, down below at the Third Metropolis Bank, Alstrom withdraws $445.76 and is leaving the building when the bank employees notice that all of the new bills in their vault have also turned white, while all the old bills appear to be just fine. Meanwhile, above the theater, Superman uh, spots Nova tied to a drain pipe and heads down intending to subdue the horse. But first, Terra Man is nearby and fires a shot from his branding iron ray, branding Superman on the forehead. And this knocks him down to the ground, and after a little bit of a tussle, Superman quickly learns that each time he uses a superpower, he starts aging further. While Terra Man is explaining all of this to him, he his face turns green for a moment, which Superman notices. He tries using his x-ray vision to check it out, but Terra Man's clothes are energized to warp the energies right back at the Man of Steel. And even though this stunt really aged Superman to the point that his costume is now baggy on him, it did allow him to discover Terra Man's oxygenated thermostat, which we learned about last issue. 33 minutes later, the 6 o'clock news, uh, is shown on TV and basically summarizes everything that has happened in the issue so far for anyone with short attention spans. We then check in on Elstrom, who is upset that Terraman has ruined his plans for the afternoon and just so happens to have found himself at the printing bureau as Terraman leaves with bags full of money. At this point, Superman flies in using his, because he's been using his Atmos analyzer to determine the source of an unknown gas in the atmosphere, uh, which he believes caused Terra Man to go green earlier and, you know, gasp and stuff. So Superman lands and realizes that the only way to counteract his aging is to do nothing. So he just takes it as Terra Man uses his power glove 
uh, to beat the tar out of the old, the old man of steel. The fighting ends when Terra Man finally slams Superman into the ground and checks him over to discover there's no breathing or heartbeat. Meanwhile, Alstrom has gone inside to the weapons locker and now has a gun trained on Terra Man, determined to make a citizen's arrest. This, uh, but for some reason, Terra Man starts getting dizzy again and turns green. He fires off some shots towards Alstrom, but when his vision clears, he sees that Superman has blocked the shots and is young again. Superman flies at Terra Man, knocking him out and revealing via thought balloon that he had stopped all his body functions to appear dead. Then Alstrom runs up with the money bags to show Superman that all of the new bills are blank. So Superman realizes that Alstrom is somehow absorbing the money ink. A quick check with X-ray vision leaves Superman confident that a surgical team, under his direction, will be able to cure Alstrom. Meanwhile, Nova is still out there. Okay, this was a pretty long story. This was probably the first, my first uh, 24, 25 page story to cover on this show. Um, didn't really feel like it too much other than uh, the part with Alstrom. Um, but I do have a, I had a couple problems with it. Um, now correct me if I'm wrong, but um, stopping Superman's body functions are one of his pre-crisis superpowers, isn't it? Because I know normal people can't do that. So therefore he's using a superpower which would have actually made him older, not counteracted the effects. I, that's one of those loopholes, I think, because I really think that that would have counted as enough of a, should have counted as enough of a power to still hurt him, but whatever. Um, we also see Terra Man mention at one point in the story that he needs to get Superman's attention when he's up on the spaceship because, you know, I guess Superman's been busy. But he just left Superman stuck on the ground in that gold suit. Uh, he just left Superman stuck in the ground in that gold suit. So he, why would he need to worry about getting Superman's attention? Plus, he doesn't actually go back to Earth until hours later. I mean, literally, we have hours later, um, the massive weight of the gravita gold is slackens off enough for Superman to get up to the sun. And then several more hours later, Alstrom's waking up at the hospital and then has time to walk around, um, see the movie theater, go out to the bank, and at some point in, during that time, we see Terra Man bust through the movie theater. It's like, wow, that's way to, you know, way to really make sure you stay on Superman. I'm pretty sure that Alstrom has, this, has a superpower of his own of coincidence. Because he literally shows up at every place that Superman and or Terra Man are. Just so happens that he's uh, Clark's neighbor. Just happens to be at the printing plant build, uh, printing bureau when uh, Terra Man's leaving. Just happens to be at, at the third, uh, metrop third Metropolis Bank. Um, the third National Bank or whatever you want to call it. Um, while Superman's flying overhead from Clark's office. I mean, and and he just happens to be going to the same movie theater that Terra Man busted through. I mean, I don't know how, well, if you want to call it lucky, a guy can get. But that was, I mean, I think he has a superpower besides his green lung. Um, I also thought it was a little far-fetched that he's soaking up, that he's somehow breathing the ink. But 
I'll let it pass. It's not as bad as some Silver Age stuff. Um, on the plus side, though, like I said, this was actually a pretty fun story. Um, while we didn't, well, once again, we didn't really see, you know, Lois or Jimmy or anyone. Uh, we did get a brief cameo by Morgan Edge. We did see Clark, and we saw him at the at his office for a panel, and uh, we did see 344 Clinton Street. So, yeah, we're getting better. Um, also, the art. Uh, seriously, Swan and Anderson are really hitting their stride at this point. Um, the only thing that I noticed was, um, and it could just be me, but the point where we actually see Superman uh, reveal that he's young again, that doesn't look like a Kurt Swan face. It looks like, it doesn't look like a uh, Neil Adams face either. I mean, some of his hairs, I mean, his hair is shorter. He doesn't have as prominent an S curl. They did a lot to make sure you don't see any lines on his face. It almost looks like maybe they got Neil Adams to come in and do the face real quick or something. I don't know. It doesn't look like a Kurt Swan Superman face or anything. Granted, it's small, so it's hard to tell if they even bothered to mess with it. But it just doesn't look like a Kurt Swan Superman. Um, that's all I can tell you. Um, so that's it for that story. There was a backup in this issue uh, called... Superman's Time Capsule, uh, written by Jerry Coleman with art by Wynn Mortimer. This is actually reprinted from a Kellogg's promotional comic in 1955. So this is probably a pretty new story for a lot of people, even if you were, even if people were getting Superman comics back then, because I'm sure you had to do some kind of mail away offer to get the book to get the book through the serial. So that's pretty cool that they uh, reprinted that. It's actually not a bad story either. I recommend it. And uh, what we'll do is I'll play a few promos and uh, we'll come back with our final issue of the month. After these messages, we'll be right back. Over 70 years of history in film, television, radio, and comics. A hero sent to Earth from a doomed planet to fight for truth, justice, and the American way. A strange visitor from another planet? Superman. This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio. A look at Superman's history in all mediums, from comics to film to merchandise, animation, and beyond. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. Join me every Sunday and Thursday for a twice-weekly exodus into the world of Superman. Sundays we explore a wide range of topics throughout the mythology, from the heights of Metropolis to the fields of Smallville, and to the depths of the galaxy of Krypton. Plus the latest news, gossip, and a look at Superman and other media. In Thursdays, we review the Superman comics following the Infinite Crisis in 2006, all the way up to the present, month by month, issue by issue. And don't forget the SFR Daily Planet, a minicast giving you the scoop on the Man of Steel as it happens. So visit supermanforever.com or iTunes, and of course the Superman Podcast Network, and begin the never-ending battle today. Superman Forever Radio. All Superman. All the time.
cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. Every legend has a beginning. Superman is a copyrighted feature appearing in Action Comics magazine. Okay, Action Comics number 410 with a February 29th, 1972 publication day. And it too, or it too, and it has a nice looking cover by Nick Carty. Um, pretty dynamic. We got, uh, people outside of, <laughs> this is pretty interesting. We have people outside, uh, the fortress, although in this case, the fortress door isn't square. It's more angled this time in, in this version. Superman's coming in with his key, but there's signs all over saying trespassers will be prosecuted, private property, Superman, keep out. So you're wondering what the heck's going on? But I do. I mean, I like it. That, I like the way uh, Nick Cardi messed with the shadow of the key. Uh, it actually wraps around the uh, what you uh, you know everything here and is affected by the pattern on the door and the ice and stuff. It looks really cool. Okay, so first story in this issue is the day they sold Superman's fortress, written by Leo Dorfman with art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson, edited by Murray Boltonoff. And, of course, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. So, one day, Superman enters his fortress, hearing alarms blaring. He leaves the fortress again to investigate and sees an oil drilling rig set up on the edge of the ice pack. Before he can get over the shock of that revelation, he sees a helicopter flying in for a landing, when suddenly its engines conk out. As it heads for the water, he also spots a school of killer whales ready to chow down on what they seem to perceive is a very large bird. So swooping down, Superman catches the helicopter and takes it to the oil rig. Uh, there, Superman meets T.J. Pearson, president of Tricontinental Fuel, who explains that he's purchased 500 square miles of Arctic coastline from the government, don't know which one, to drill for oil. Pearson offers to give Superman a tour of the area, but Superman declines, saying that he needs to take care of some business. So he flies out over the Arctic wastes, and this time sees that the place is crawling with oil prospecting teams. He then discovers that Pearson and some of his men have somehow gotten to the, to the fortress entrance ahead of Superman. Superman, without wanting to give away the idea that, you know, it's his secret fortress of solitude, tries to tell Peterson that this could be private property. But Pearson explains that this was government land and was therefore public domain, and since Pearson bought it, it now belongs to him, lock, stock, and barrel. Pearson and his men attempt to break in, but as we saw a couple of issues ago, there really isn't a way to bust through that super hard door. 
So Superman leaves thinking about everything he has inside and realizing that he needs to find a solution. But during his reminiscing, he remembers that he should also update Kandor on the situation. So he actually drills through one of the other walls. Uh, and when he enters the fortress, he actually sees that Kandor is missing. So he heads back out and sees Supergirl flying overhead and decides to bring her up to speed on what's been going on. Seems she has brought some outlawed biowarfare weapons that the UN had asked him to dispose of. And as they continue to talk, they decide that they're not going to be able to dispose of it in the superatomic furnace under the fortress, so they bore down to the Earth's core to dispose of them there. Superman then heads to Metropolis to consult the city's most brilliant lawyer, but without giving away too much info about the fortress. Basically, the lawyer just states that whoever has occupied, or whomever has occupied this property, is basically a squatter, and therefore has no rights to the property. Also, if the squatter tries to remove the structure or its contents, he'll be in serious violation of the law because it all now belongs to whoever owns that property. In this case, Pearson. So Superman heads back up to the Arctic and tries to discourage any drilling by doing underground by going underground and actually guiding the drills into a hot spring, which causes a gusher that freezes in the sub-zero temperatures and basically results in a blizzard a pocket of smoke and gas, and finally, a volcanic mud. This really frustrates Pearson to the point that he's decided to call off the whole project, but not before trying to find out what is behind that fortress, the fortress door. So Superman comes up with an idea to stop him, but it's a wild, wacky, way-out gamble. So we later see Pearson and his men again attempting to break in when Superman shows up. Pearson offers to donate a million dollars to Superman's charity of choice uh, if he'll just open the door for them. Superman's about to comply when Supergirl shows up and asks to speak to him in private. But basically, Superman just tells her to butt out. So then he pries the door off only to re reveal that there's a wall of ice behind it with a, pack, with, a pack, with a plaque on it that basically reads, This door was placed here by an alien from space to symbolize his hope that his visit would bring mankind across the threshold to a magnificent future. Disappointed, Pearson asks Superman for the door and the plaque to keep his keepsakes and to fly them back to the mainland. When he returns, Superman explains to Supergirl that he had created a wall outside of the real door to the fortress, then erected another door to throw, Peterson off, or to throw Pearson off. At that point, both heroes enter the fortress to see Kandor materialize right before their eyes. A quick call to Kandor reveals that uh, when the Kandorians noticed that someone was trying to break into the fortress, they transported the Bottle City to the Invisibility Zone, which is a warp that they were experimenting with at the time. So, with things back to normal, Superman and Supergirl leave the fortress. But Supergirl wonders what will prevent this from happening again. So Superman reveals that he has placed a mirage ray inside the door's keyhole, which will hide the key and the door from, a, from behind a phantom barrier of ice, so no one will be able to ever see them. The end. Okay. Now, I have a, a couple questions I have. How did Superman and Supergirl not notice the oil rig being built before? Um, this is, I mean, it's not just something that pops up overnight. And they've been there several times, 
I would think that they would have noticed it. And I would have thought that when Superman was flying from the fortress to the oil rig, he probably would have seen all of these prospecting teams that were swarming and stuff. Had to dodge helicopters. But he didn't. And didn't notice them until he was heading, trying to head back to the fortress. And how the heck did Pearson and his crew beat Superman to the fortress? That it makes no sense whatsoever. Um... Another problem I have is one of the things in the fortress is that, uh, that Superman's remembering is that he has a room in there that basically gives away all of the other secret identities. Uh, we see it on here. Um, let's see, let me look at it again. We see on here the, I don't know if it's the full room, but we see an image of Superman next to Clark Kent. We see a pic, an, uh, statue of Barry Allen next to the Flash. We see Bruce Wayne with Batman, Diana Prince with Wonder Woman in her traditional red, white, and blue outfit, and we see Linda Danvers with wrong colored hair with Supergirl in her then current costume. But here's my problem. Um, since as far back as I can remember, Superman has had this idea that he that the fortress is kind of a capsule of his life, and he didn't want anything about his secret identity being given given away so he actually made sure that when he made rooms uh, like he's got a Lois Lane room and a Jimmy Olsen room and a Perry White room he made sure he had a Clark Kent room so that if the place like if an earthquake busted it open uh, people wouldn't realize that Clark Kent and Superman were the same person that makes perfect sense so him having a room that basically gives away the secret identities of Earth's great heroes and heroines uh, kind of goes against all of that and seems kind of dumb. Uh, it just doesn't make much sense. It's not some. It just doesn't sound right to hit me. Um, so the other question I have was: We never see Superman fix it. So what's to prevent one of these um, groups of prospectors uh, from no, from entering the fortress through the hole that Superman made to? go inside and talk to Candor and then leave because then he talks to Supergirl and they just bore back to go back to the Earth's core and we never see him head back to, to fix the hole in the fortress. Uh, but also if Superman can bore through that and if Superman and Supergirl can bore through the ground to get to Earth's core, why can't they bore down to the superatomic furnace? Yeah, makes no sense to me either. Um, so, the other question is, and this has happened several times in a Leo Dorf, excuse me, in a Leo Dorfman story, but why does Superman have to act like such a, pardon my French, but he acts like a dick to Supergirl. Um, he literally tells her, and I'm going to quote the word balloon here, he literally says, butt out, can't you see I'm busy? And he really, it's, he really just acts like a jerk there. Why can't he say something like, uh, listen, just trust me, I have things under control, or something like that, more, you know, Superman-ish. But no, he's got to act like a, a dick and be all really rude to her. I just don't get that. Um, on the plus side, though, um, I kind of like this story, just because I knew of that Mirage Ray thing, and I had thought it was always there. I, I've read this story before, so I knew it happened right around here, but uh, first time I read this story, I was pretty shocked that it happened actually so late on. I figured it was something that Superman had put in place like when it was first in, 
introduced. I didn't realize it was a later edition. Um, but I love reading about innovations to the Superman mythos as they occur, especially when it's actual introduction and they don't just say, oh yeah, we've had this the whole time or something like that. But um, uh, the other cool thing is that this Mirage Ray really does stick around. Um, it's uh, It basically becomes a main point of the fortress security from here on out to the end of the Bronze Age. And um, it also ends up showing up on the Super Friends and the Super Powers show, specifically uh, the episode of the Super Powers show uh, titled The Death of Superman. I kind of like the continuity that this starts because people, uh, this, this Mirage Ray, like I said, sticks around. It's really cool. Also, once again, we have great art by Swan and Anderson. Uh, they really outdo themselves on this issue because they have a lot of people to draw. And everyone looks look really cool. And they really make sure to make Pearson look pretty, like, a little bit older. So it's really nice. And little wrinkles. Um, the backup story in this, uh, the first backup, is uh, Eclipso, the genius who fought himself. Which is actually the first appearance of Eclipso. Written by Bob Haney, with art by Lee Elias. And is actually reprinted from House of Secrets number 61, which had a July-August 1963 cover date. The backup story, which uh, is actually a current story that also flashes back a little bit to his college years, um, is The Girl Who Worshipped Clark Kent, written again by Leo Dorfman, with art by John Kalman and Murphy Anderson. Editor is Murray Boltonoff again, and of course Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. So at a class reunion in Metro at Metropolis University, a girl suddenly comes up out of nowhere to greet Clark and give him a hug. When she finally lets go, Clark realizes it's Lorna Martin, the target of every Romeo on campus back in their college days. She admits to him that she had a secret crush on him, but Clark, who reveals via thought balloon that he had a secret crush on her as well, kind of deflects that statement by suggesting that they take a walk around campus to see other classmates. After their stroll down memory lane, they head back to Lorna's hotel room so that she can change before they go out to dinner. But as she starts to enter the room, she kind of gets dizzy, blacks out, and faints. Clark carries her in, and after laying her on the bed, he sees that she's got several pictures of Clark, including one that shows him changing to Superman. So Lorna wakes up at about that time and explains that she's actually from Dimension 7. And she had been sent to our third dimension on an assignment to attend Metropolis University, where several of the male students flirted with her due to her beauty. She also had an ESP bracelet, which helped her learn more about her fellow classmates and learn that most of her admirers were actually conceited egotists. One student that didn't flirt with her was Clark Kent, whose shyness and modesty actually attracted Lorna to him. So, at one point, she used her ESP bracelet on him and learned that he was, in fact, Superman. Learning that she's kept... Um, this kind of ends the flashback. And learning that she's kept his secret for all these years, Clark begins to think that perhaps she is the girl for him. Um, Clark begins to think that perhaps she is the girl for him. Suddenly, she picks up a job for Superman with her ESP bracelet and sends Clark off to take care of it. When she gets back, he sees that she has appeared that she has actually aged. Suddenly, two men materialize through a dimensional door from Dimension 7. They explain that they and Lorna come from a planet in Dimension 7 that orbits its sun at one-tenth the speed of Earth. 
Therefore, each of their years is at, is that same. Therefore, each of their years is actually ten earth years. When Lorna was, had originally come to Earth, she actually took a stabilizer potion to counteract the aging effect, but it only works once. So when she came back to see Clark, she was actually trying to convince him to come back with her, but she also started to age quickly this time. So the men take her back to Dimension 7 to save her and to try to cure her, but she can never return. She begs Clark not to look at her and remember her as she was. After she leaves, Clark realizes that this is probably the first girl to fall in love with Clark instead of Superman. And sad, he uses his heat vision to burn up all of Lorna's pictures and says he will always remember Lorna as she was. Now, again, there's some plot holes in Leo's story. I know it's shocking. I only find them every time. Um... So Super Clark thinks that this might be the girl for her for him. Now let's look at Lorna carefully here. First of all, she appears to be overly obsessed with him to the point that she actually has a ton of pictures of him, including making sure she has them with her at a hotel room. It's one thing to have him at her house, but this is her hotel room. Number two, it's been a not long several years even her time, since they were in college together. Okay. And she still is obsessed with him. Number three. Uh, yes, she, um, she had kept the secret of, Superman, of Clark being Superman for all those years, and I commend her for that. That couldn't have been easy. Uh, but she kind of expressed a lack of smarts, by actually make, bringing one of, making sure one of those pictures that she had is a picture of Clark switching to Superman. So, yeah, if anyone had happened to break into the place, they would have been like, oh, this guy's Superman, cool. And then, you know, I, you know, who knows where that could have led. This is a Leo Dorfman story. I'm sure someone would have known it was Clark Kent. But, um, yeah, and, and it turns out... Of course, he didn't know that at the time, but it turns out she's from Dimension 7, so she kind of had to keep the secret. She kind of kept the secret anyway because she, once she finished college, I'm guessing she went back, so she wasn't around on our planet to actually tell anyone. Um, on page 6, Clark says Lorna isn't wearing her ES, ESP bracelet. Uh, but if you look at her in that same panel, she's kind of holding it up because she's doing something with her head. And it's not only in front of her, kind of next to her face, but it's right in front of Clark's eye-level vision. And she definitely has that ESP bracelet on her. So I don't know. I would imagine that that would be a fault of Kalman or Anderson, but someone should have noticed that. That's all I'm saying. It just stuck out for me, and I just read these things. Um, on the plus side, though, other than that art flub, the art was pretty good in this issue, but once again, like last issue, it totally looks like it's just Anderson. Uh, you can't really see Callan's work in here. It, that totally looks like Anderson's inks are really overpowering the pencils. Uh, it, he doesn't have the blend that he does with Swan. It just, it, yeah, it just doesn't really work. It, I mean, this could totally have just been a Murphy Anderson penciled story. And it would look exactly the same, I think. Maybe the composition would be a little different. 
Um, and it was not a bad story either, um, even though I found those plot holes. Um, it did seem kind of cliche to have her be an alien, but you know, it's a, it's supposed to be science fiction. And also, the other the other thing I thought was interesting is uh, this is the first time we've seen a backup story by Leo Dorfman that he didn't sign as Jeff Brown. I don't know the reason. Uh, I did think it was kind of weird, but um, yeah, for some reason, both stories in this are signed as Leo Dorfman. Maybe he did sign it, and they were like, you know what, we're just going to say it's Leo Dorfman because this whole Jeff Brown thing is just confusing. But I just thought it was interesting that they did that in any event. And um, yeah, so that's about it for this issue, too. Um, one more break, and we'll come back with the Elsewhere. Michael Bailey and I'm Jeffrey Taylor and we host a podcast called from crisis to crisis a Superman podcast presented by the Superman homepage on the show wait 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 what this just isn't working out for me it's not bombastic enough we need something epic like what Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman. Wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle-scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number 1 in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air, eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. 
Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com. All right. Well, as I mentioned, this is um, issues cover dated April 1972. And these are the other issues that came out uh, this month, February, uh, that were also published in February of 1972. Starting off, we have February 1st, so we're starting right at the beginning of the month. We have Falling in Love, number 132, and the top, uh, the article that they have in this one is How to Throw a Groovy Party for Under $5, because, yeah, I wonder if that would work today. I don't know if you could f- throw a, f- a party for less than $5 these days. Anyway, uh, next up is Forever People, number 8, and that's pretty cool, Army of, Our Army at War. Number 244. Uh, see what happens when Rock meets his first tiger, and that's apparently the tank that they're talking about. We have All-Star Western number 11. And this appears to be the last issue. I don't see anything uh, that doesn't show that they're going to have another issue anytime soon. So this is the final issue of All-Star Western, at least as it's titled here. Uh, featuring stories with Jonah Hex, El Diablo, Pow Wow Smith, and Batlash. Uh, we have Brave and the Bold, number 101, uh, featuring Batman and Metamorpho. Uh, Flash 214, which is once again a 100-page, well, not for them, but which is a 100-page Super Spectacular, which means it's all uh, reprints. Uh, featuring two stories starring the Barry Allen Flash, one starring uh, the Jay Garrick Flash, one starring Wally West's Kid Flash, one starring Johnny Quick, one starring the Metal Men, and one starring Quicksilver. And yeah, that's pretty cool. And the only Metal Men we actually really see on the cover though is Platinum, because I guess they needed a girl. Uh, then we have GI Combat number 153. Uh, once again, start the haunted tank and uh, trying not to, you know, roll over a uh, dog, but looks like he's about to. We have House of Secrets number 97, which features a very, very moody cover by Jack Sparling. I mean, it looks really cool. We have Young Romance number 118. Uh, when Money. And how to get your in a new get your man contest. Plus the do's and don'ts of dating, because you can never get enough of that. Uh, we have Sinister House of Secret Love number four, with a pretty cool but not quite as moody cover as uh, by Tony Dezuniga, but it still looks pretty cool, if you ask me. Witching Hour number twenty. This is a moody looking cover by Nick Cardi. It looks like a poor puppy just got hurt. That's sad. I like me. I, I like puppies. Uh, House of Mystery number two hundred one, and um, 
That's a pretty cool looking Mike Kaluta cover on that. I you need to check that one out. Um, Star Spangled War Stories number one sixty two. Uh, Young Love number ninety four. Uh, special with a special uh, twenty ways to meet boys. You know, in case you want to. Um, From Beyond the Unknown number sixteen, which actually has a pretty cool looking cover. Apparently, it's by Murphy Anderson. But you see this giant robot, and it's pretty cool because it looks like it's a robot uh, with six people controlling it. But instead of being like a one of those uh, anime robots, this definitely looks more like it has a Western influence. And the people upside are in there. It looks more like they're in a control room than standing there, you know, with like like pilots. So it looks pretty cool, but it's a giant robot being attacked by airplanes, and it's done a pretty good job of taking out those airplanes. We have New Gods number 8, featuring Orion, Light Ray, and Calabac, and a detective who tries to save the city from the titanic battle of the New Gods. And of course, that detective would have to be Dan Turpin. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, of course, Superman's pal, the new Jimmy Olsen, number 148. Which means we're running near to the end of Jack Kirby's run on that book. Uh, we have Green Arrow. No, we have Green Lantern number eighty-nine, uh, with a t- with a story titled "And Through Him Save a World." And we have a very I don't know how they got away with this with the comic code approved issue, but uh, we have basically what looks like um, a Jesus type figure, basically in a crucifixion. I don't. I can't tell from this image. I don't think he's nailed down, but he is tied up. And he's got long hair and a beard. It obviously you can tell where that what they're trying what they're trying to convey on that. Uh Heartthrobs number 140. Test yourself. Is he too old for you? Yep. Girls love stories number 168. Learn how to hypnotize yourself and find love. No, thank you. Lois Lane, number 121. Uh, featuring everything you ever wanted to know about Lois Lane. But for some reason on the cover, Lois is really old. Uh, and, yeah. But it also features the Rose and Thorns, so yeah. We have Superboy, number 184, featuring the Glass Nightmare, where Superboy looks in a mirror and sees himself as... I don't know. I guess he's getting old and stuff. Uh, it looks really gross. Uh, unexpected, number 134, which actually has a pretty cool-looking cover. Uh... Actually, it looks like a, a young man, could be even Morgan Edge, learns that he's married into a family that's basically the Adams family. Not the Adams family. Wow, the Munsters. Mm-hmm. Minus, you know, the dad. Uh, Herman. Herman, that's the guy's name. Uh, Adventure Comics, number 418, once again featuring Supergirl, because she has not yet gone to her own title. And this one is, she's facing the dragon. It's got a pretty look, pretty cool looking cover. Got a dragon behind her, but it looks like she's turning into pavement. That's interesting. Uh, we have Detective Comics number four twenty two, and the cover. And I don't think you get really get to see 
uh, uh, Batgirl drawn by Neil Adams too much, but the startling story of the unmasking of Batgirl. Ooh, boy. And I'm wondering if this is the issue where she finally reveals her secret identity to Commissioner Gordon. To find out, make sure you uh, listen to um, Batgirl to Oracle, a Barbara Gordon podcast hosted by Stella, because she actually covers all these stories, and I'm sure she's getting, and I'm pretty sure she's getting close to that issue, so make sure you listen to her podcast for that. Uh, the only thing I do notice is on this cover, I believe Batgirl's boots are supposed to be yellow, but on this cover, they're blue. Just want to point that out. And finally for this month, we have Tarzan number 207, which, ironically enough, is the first issue published by DC Comics. Uh, and it looks pretty cool. This, this one not only has the origin of the ape man, but also Tarzan's first Christmas, which seems out of place because this issue came out in February with a cover date of April, and they're a couple months behind. And because you want to keep things sim similar, you know, you don't want to have a weird story uh, backing up, you know, Tarzan stories. The final story is John Carter, Warlord of Mars, because that makes perfect, perfect sense. Wow. But then again, it does make sense because it was reprinted in Tarzan Family number 65. So I'm going to leave, like, leave that part out. So that's it for this month. Um, I want to thank, or for this week anyway, thank you for listening. I hope to have this um, show out at the normal time so things will be back on track for a little bit. Um, again, thank you for listening. I apologize again for all the delays, but things should be going back on track. Um, I got some plans for something coming down the pike that I think people will be interested in. And um, I just want to make sure um, everyone goes to the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com uh, where you can find a ton of shows related to Superman covering everything from the Golden Age to today. Plus, um, and that's just the comics. There's, uh, we've also got uh, shows covering Smallville and uh, the animated stuff and Superboy and later Lois and Clark. So I really want to make sure you guys check that out. And that's about it. So and thank, thank you for listening. You all take care. And now here's Angie. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. Superman in the Bronze Age is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, where new episodes are posted weekly. Episodes are also posted at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com and supermanhomepage.com. You can also subscribe to this show via RSS feed and iTunes. All images, characters, and music used in the show are for entertainment purposes only. No money is made by the show. Superman is created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
Superman is also a copyrighted feature, appearing in Superman DC publications.